0: I ended up getting a divorce from my first wife, and that made me no longer a millionaire. <laughs> that was the most disappointing, that as the person that they believed in, I was letting them down. I really was a little too obsessed about the numbers. As you get older, you realize that the only thing you have that's worth any money is your time. So, my company right now is called Lab Sensor Solutions. We're a sensor as a service platform for health and safety. What that means is on the health side, anything that has to do with the healthcare system, blood samples, urine samples, tissue, pharmaceuticals, reagents, whole blood, organs, stuff like that, we make sure it gets to the right temperature at the right place at the right time because those types of materials are temperature sensitive. I mean, if you bake a blood sample in the sun too long, the tests, they're not right. So we have that side of the business, and then we also have what's called the safety side of the business, and that primarily has to deal with food safety. So meat, dairy, produce, anything that, if spoiled, will make you sick, which, funnily enough, I'm sure everyone has had food poisoning, and that's what we're trying to prevent. So our platform is both a sensor, piece of hardware, mobile applications, and cloud-based computing to ensure that perishables don't spoil.
1: Right. And so you're saying, if we're just talking about, I guess to keep it simple, a blood test, for instance, you're saying you censor... That to make sure the temperature doesn't go too high, too low in there. And then, I mean, what were they doing before? Were they not censoring, or were you just you saw an opening in the market and thought there could be better sensors? Like, how'd you get into that?
0: Yeah. So before, what they would do is validate the container,
1: literally an igloo cooler.
0: Put it in. They go to Costco or Walmart and buy igloo coolers and put ice in them and make sure that the samples are kept cold. And so their process is not to continuously monitor the temperature, but rather to instruct the people that pack these things, hey, put this many blocks of ice, and if at the end there's an inch of ice left, then you're probably at the right temperature. And that is just not adequate. And the reason why it's not adequate is because the conditions in which these containers filled with samples find themselves in vary. So if you're like in New Mexico, for example, the morning may be really cold, but as the day goes on, it can get up to 110, 120. Sometimes inside the car, it can get up to 130 or 140. And there's no good way for a human to kind of judge that unless they're literally monitoring the temperature. So in some cases, people would put like barbecue thermometers, literally, I'm not kidding, to monitor the inside of the tote. And then, oh, it's you know out of compliance or whatnot. But they would never, they would have to remember to check it. And, and you know these guys are busy and their main job is to move samples from point A to point B. So what we found is that if they had a way to monitor this stuff in real time, they could fix problems before the problems occurred. And that's a really powerful thing because one of these containers may contain 100 or 200 blood samples, and that's worth a lot of money, especially if it's your sample and your doctor calls you up and says, oh, uh, you need to come back in. No one wants to get pricked twice, right? just—I mean, It's just a not a fun exercise. So we saw this opportunity and decided, hey, you know, we really need to do something about it. And there's been a lot of regulations and a lot of activity to try to decrease the cost of healthcare. I mean, in the US, it's what, 17% of GDP. It's the highest of, any industrialized nation on the planet, yet our outcomes are horrible compared to how much we spend. So there's a huge inefficiency. There's just problems. I mean, there's lots and lots of problems. I mean, just to put it in perspective, and no one talks about this because the numbers are hard to get at, but the general consensus is that preventable medical error, which means something that should have been caught, and was not caught, accounts for anywhere between 250 and 400,000 deaths per year in the U.S., which is a very shocking statistic considering that's the number three cause of death behind heart disease and then cancer. So what you're starting to see, or at least what we're starting to see, is that there is a huge, huge incentive to make things more efficient, make things more transparent and really apply technology that's been around for a long time. I mean, the stuff we're doing has been in the commercial space. Guys like Facebook and Twitter have used similar technologies, not the sensor side, but the scaling of web stuff for, what, decade? Nothing new. It's just healthcare tends to lag behind.
1: Yeah, and that's one of those industries that I could see that I have a background in the commercial real estate industry, and they lag way behind as far as looking at those improvements and technology. So I can understand that. But I know you said you saw an opening in the market, but how'd you see that? Were you one of these carriers of the blood that had the icebox or what? How'd you decide to?
0: No, actually, I was at a startup about 10 years ago that was trying to solve this problem in a different way and we failed. We burned through a lot of money and ended up not being able to commercialize our very innovative product, which I think was part of the problem. I mean, when it comes to like a startup, there's like three major risk factors that people look for, right? There's the team, the market, and the technology. I mean, those three you're always grappling with, right? And if you're going to go raise money, for example, you have to mitigate two of the three. It can be any two of the three, (laughs) but you definitely can't have like all three of them piled against you. And at the old company, we had pretty much all three piled against us. Uh, Well, no, we had two of the three pilot. The team was a pretty good team. We knew what we were doing in terms of the technology, but the market and the technology was new. So what we learned from this, again, was same marketplace clinical laboratory, was that this innovative technology that we had would solve the problem, but it would have had a lot of friction in order to implement it. And really what happened was uh, Bluetooth low energy technology came out. And this was Three years ago. And when we saw that, we recognized that, hey, one, Bluetooth sensors could solve this problem. And two, the major sticking point for the other system was the infrastructure deploying infrastructure, which meant installing hardware. It's essentially you'd have to install a bunch of Wi-Fi routers, but it wasn't Wi-Fi. It was an RFID technology. And with Bluetooth, every single one of us has got a Bluetooth reader in our pocket. It's called our cell phone. Once that happened, it was like, oh, wow, the infrastructure problem goes away. The technology issue goes away. Now it's just a market issue.
1: Yeah. So you're saying you brought your whole team from before. So you've got the team and technology part you're saying covered. Yeah. And then how about the market? Is it you're saying you just need two at the three and right. Is the market what's your take on that then at this point?
0: Yeah, it's slow to develop. It's slow it's healthcare.
1: Right. So yeah, we
0: had the team, you know, the talent and technology. Now it's just a question of does the will the market accept it? We're at the stage right now where we are getting product market fit. We have customers that pay us. We're starting to see the uptick and the trend. But it's healthcare, so it goes slow. I mean, if you were a normal like B2C company, you know, you made an app and you're on the app store, you're looking at week over week growth. If you're the Y Combinator guys, you want 10% week over week growth. That's for them the metric that matters. You know, the one metric that matters is, okay, how many users are you getting or whatever it is? You want that growing 10% per week. When you're in a B2B, you know, business to business case, that just doesn't happen. You measure growth. And customer acquisition and closing deals in months and quarters, not weeks. So you got to be in it for the long haul, and it's just a different sell. It's way more touch, a lot more touch, a lot more talking on the phone. I mean, you know, healthcare they still use fax machines Mm. and you know stuff like that. So different mindset. But yeah, we're seeing some good traction, and when we expanded into the food safety, that's where we see a lot more opportunity as well because it's similar problem. If you have bad milk, bad meat, bad produce, you have problems. If it spoils, people get sick. Sure. One in six Americans every year get food poisoning.
1: Okay, so we understand where you're at today. Let's reel back to, I guess, when you where you went to school, kind of what you got out and what you've learned along your journey to getting where you've been successful today. If that's right.
0: Sure. So uh, I have a degree in electrical engineering from San Jose State University, and here in California graduated in 95. So a little bit older than I guess most entrepreneurs. Um, I've been doing entrepreneurial type stuff. For the last 20 years, I went to a couple of big companies, but realized very quickly that I'm basically unemployable when it comes to a big company just because I just call the bullshit flag too much. I just kind of tell it like it is, you know, Right. in a big corporation, you got to play the political game. And that's just not my personality. So my first job out of college was at a startup that went public and was a company called Adaptive Solutions. They no longer exist. But that was a tremendous learning experience. And the people I worked with there were just A plus, taught me so much and really was uh, just this massive learning curve on, you know, what it's like to be at a startup. What it's like to have gone public. And and this was back in the mid '90s where going public was. I mean, you, you needed some revenue. I mean, this was literally right before the internet boom. So internet boom sort of started in '97, '98, and kind of crashed in 2000. So this is the point where internet really wasn't happening yet. I mean, guys like, you know, Netscape and all those were just it was just starting to happen. And the company that I was with, we were doing parallel processing chips for industrial applications and image rendering. And it's just this real heavy hardware. You know, it was a semiconductor company, which back then you could get money for. <laughs> right. Nowadays, semiconductor companies, that's just a bad business to be in. And so I learned a lot about the the importance of having a great team, working on a technology that could actually happen. And then the company eventually went out of business. And the reason is, is because the market timing was off. What we were building was way ahead of the needs of the market. And put that in perspective, if any of you guys out there know about NVIDIA, which I'm sure you do if you play video games, you know, they have their graphic processor, then they have this thing called a GPU, which was a way that you could process like things in parallel. And so the company I was at back in 95, 96 actually had a GPU, pretty much the first ones to ever do that. And we didn't call it that, but to put that in perspective, there weren't very many applications that could use that amount of horsepower. The only one was image manipulation or compression, which is a longer story, which we won't get into. But I mean, 95 to that's over 20 years ago, right? Like the stuff that NVIDIA is doing, the stuff that Google's now doing with their building chips for AI and artificial intelligence and machine learning. We had done that 20 years ago. But again, no real application for it. You know, market timing was, was totally off.
1: Was that Adaptive Solutions, you were saying? Yeah. And then, okay. And then you worked for similar type companies leading up to yeah. LabCorp? Okay.
0: Yeah. So, um, well, then I jumped to a, a speech recognition company called Sensory, which we both basically built chips and software for us. We started out with toys. If <laughs> you wanted speech recognition in a toy, we were your guys. And we would do these silly toys that were just so funny and a lot in Japan. And, and, and oh man, they would, we would have all these toys in the office and we would literally play with the toys to figure out if our algorithm would work. And again, speech recognition at the time no one was really doing it. And Siri was never, I mean, no one thought what happened with Siri or Amazon Echo. So we were doing that kind of stuff again, 20 years ago. And just, it was like just starting to like, how is this going to happen? You know, and the compute power. In fact, a lot of this, I think some of the technology that sensory developed is now in the Amazon Echo, I think. So again, market timing wasn't there, but they're still around and they did some really great stuff. And then after that, I went to a a semiconductor company called Cypress Semiconductor and worked on Bluetooth. And that was a really big, huge company. They just built like Bluetooth chips and USB chips and memory chips. And that was around the time that the internet bubble burst. So we got hit really hard our customers were internet companies that were buying Cisco routers, and our chips were in the Cisco routers. So there was one point where we had negative sales, if
1: you can believe that. How do you do that? Is that from people returning them? or
0: they, It was that, and they literally canceled orders.
1: Okay. Anyway.
0: I remember we're in this meeting, huge meeting, and the CEO of the company shows the chart, and he's just like, yeah, you see that? We have negative bookings. And I'm all, oh, no. Yeah. No one knew the extent of the 2000 meltdown. And that was one of the things that was really another very valuable lesson in seeing what's out there and like really planning for it. Because I mean, we still manufactured stuff. We didn't slow down. And that turned out to be a pretty bad move because I think we went through three rounds of layoffs for the next year and a half just to stem the bleeding. And that was a pretty tough time.
1: Right. Well, during those portions, I mean, were you like part of a management team or were you a founder in those as well? Or how'd that work out from Adaptive Solutions, I guess, and all the way to Cypress Semiconductor you're talking about?
0: Yeah. So Adaptive, I was just an employee. Right
1: just an engineer. Sensory, I was an engineer, but
0: it was a startup, so I had stock. Cypress, I made my way up to managing because it was a big company and it was already public. Right. So I learned a lot about how to manage projects. How to, I always say it's good to go to a big company kind of to learn how to do it the right way. So when you go to your startup, you know where to cheat and not do stuff. Because even if though you're at a startup, and it's kind of a wild west, you still got to have a process in which you do stuff. And that process or those techniques are really important to, like, know Because you got to know the rules in order to break them. And if you don't know the rules, then you kind of don't know what you're doing. You could be like, oh, well, we don't need a release process. And you're kind of like, yeah, you sort of do, even if you're a startup, because as you scale, that's going to break. And that's what Cypress did extremely well was process. I learned so much about process there.
1: What's a release process?
0: For example, let's say you built an app and you want to put it in the app store. The app store will have a process they go through to make sure that you have the right description, that your code compiles. You know, there's a checklist of things like, well, before you ever stick it in the app store, You need to have a process to make sure your app's not going to break, right, or crash a phone or, you know, I'm sure you've downloaded software and you're like, oh, my God, they didn't even test this. Like, this is just ridiculous. So that's a release process. And you don't want your customers to be your quality gate, right? You don't want them to be like, hey, I found all these errors. You're like, oh, God, you know, once it's out in the wild, it's just a lot harder to fix. A lot of times startups make that mistake, you know it's I've made it multiple times. so it,
1: uh, how so? could you tell us about one of your hardest times with doing that?
0: Yeah, I mean, this was at Lab sensor. We're constantly updating our website and our what we call our analytics engine that crunches all this data. And I remember we had done a release and for whatever reason, the code wasn't checked in right? And so we ended up pushing it to the live site. And then literally someone logged in. It's like, oh, it doesn't work. It gives us this huge, massive error. It was like a database error or something. And I'm like, oh no, oops, this is not good. And we had to scramble for like a day to figure out, oh my God, what happened? Why did it break? And when we figured it out and it turned out, What we should have done was tested it a little more rigorously. Turns out we were just in a hurry, as most startups are. (laughs) Get that, but yeah.
1: Yeah, I guess throughout the journeys too, I mean, can you think about some other hard times that you went through just so people can kind of relate to see, you know, the ups or downs, if there's any like really positive stories that you can think about that like the listeners can pull from help connect.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, there's lots of ups and downs in the startup world and and being an entrepreneur. I mean, you really got to enjoy the journey. I know that sounds cliche, but the odds of success are extremely low. If you're in it for the money, it's time to go really think hard about what you should be doing because there are a lot of other more stable higher probability of success, things that you could do that you could make a lot of money at. Entrepreneurship just so happens to have a pretty big multiplier if you hit it right. And you see that in spades. I mean, if you look at the actual statistics, less than 1% of companies become unicorns that are, you know, funded startups. I mean, that's, those are abysmal odds. <laughs> if you're an entrepreneur, you're pretty crazy to do it. You must really enjoy it. But yeah, I mean, there's been, there's been so many great, great learning experiences and stories. I mean, I think I'll start out with a real positive one. When I was at a company called Ion Torrent, which was a startup doing DNA sequencing. I remember the day they closed the deal when we got bought by Life Technologies. And Life Technologies bought Ion Torrent for $750 million. I mean, I was like employee 50 or something. I don't remember. It was too long ago. But I just remember that day. (laughs) I remember the, oh, my God, I can't believe it. You know, like that's just an amazing feeling when all this hard work you did Pays off and some massive company pays three quarters of a billion dollars for a company that barely been around for three or four years. And there was just a lot of positivity. And I mean, we worked hard and, and that was a very. There were good times and bad times at ION. I mean, like every startup's that way. But that one was, wow, so this is what it feels like. you know. That was a lot more meaningful than when Adaptive went public because when Adaptive went public, it wasn't nearly that big an evaluation. And then I think some of the harder times are when you're at a startup. And another startup I was at, which was called Tagent. You know, we were always struggling to raise money. And that was the one I alluded to before, where the market and the technology were just too risky. We were doing things that were pretty innovative. And I just remember I was a founder and the VP of R&D. And I remember I had to pull all my guys in the room and basically tell them that I couldn't pay them anymore. And we're going to need to lay some of them off and figure out how we're going to survive. And as a founder and as a, a manager of people and as a leader of people, That is probably the worst feeling in the world, mostly because if you have any kind of empathy for any kind of human or any kind of situation, you really feel bad that you are letting these guys down. And they were all just fantastic people, and they were working really hard. I mean, you know, it's a startup. We work hard, right? And we weren't paying them that great, but, I mean, they really believed in what we were doing, and they believed in me. And that was the most disappointing, that as their leader, as the person that they believed in, I was letting them down. And that that was a tough tough thing to swallow and and we ended up having to close that company down because we ran out of money. But we had gone through that kind of exercise, hey we can't pay you exercise two or three times before we had to shut it down. And every time it was hard to do, but I think the thing that I really learned from that was being open and honest with the situation and really trying hard to help those people that were affected. And some of them worked for free for a while. Which was really fantastic. Some of them were very honest. They're like, "Hey, I got to pay my bills," and I'm like, "Hey, I'll, you know, I'll do whatever I can to help you." And to this day, I still get occasionally. We'll talk with those guys, and they'll be like, "Hey, when are we gonna get the band back together and do great things?" I really enjoyed working for you. And just to put it in perspective, I mean, for two and a half, three years, their paycheck was in question. You know, some of them took huge pay cuts too. To work with us, and I just was so proud that not only in how I tried to handle it, because those are tough decisions and, and they're tough conversations to have. But this many years later, and that's over—that's like ten years ago—they still remember how great it was to work with each other how great a time they had, and even during the bad times. And and that just makes me feel great. I mean, I try every day to make sure that I have a lot of that integrity, that honesty, and really looking out for the guys that worked for me. And that just means the world to me. And and every time someone says that, I just get a big smile on my face. And I'm like, yeah, I would love to band back together one
1: day. Well, yeah, I know that's awesome that they can look back on a positive aspect about it now. But I mean, at the time, was that any of those, you know, when you're going up and you have to fire X amount of people, I mean, does any of that start affecting your personal life? Because I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs... kind of forget or don't talk about that necessarily in interviews all the time, you know, because I mean, eventually it's going to affect it. So I don't know if at that time you ever had it affect your personal life or any time from graduation up to where you are today, kind of, you know, the personal aspects of entrepreneurship and the highs and lows.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, I know when you sent me the questionnaire about have you ever been a millionaire, which is a very interesting question. And, And I took pause. Just to be honest, because I'm kind of like, well, it's not really about the money, but I understand, you know, where the question comes from. And, you know, it is millionaires in the name of the podcast. Yeah, I, should have right. expected
1: that. I was debating whether I, everyone has to be a millionaire or not. I figure it kind of helps filter at least success. And I agree. It's not everything or any, but it just helps qualify yeah. a little bit.
0: And, you know, I mean, it's a metric metric that a lot of people look at. Right. And to be honest, when I was younger, I looked at that life metric as well during all these times. I was very diligent about tracking my wealth. And there was a point in time where I was a millionaire. And I remember the time when I was looking through all this and I had all my stocks and property and I was like, God, I was so excited, you know, and I was married at the time. And I was a little too obsessed about that, to be honest. And It really did affect my personal life. I ended up getting a divorce from my first wife, and that made me no longer a millionaire, among other things. I mean, you know, crashes in the stock market. And so when that happened, upon reflection, I really was a little too obsessed about the numbers. And I think it had a lot to do with that's how I measured success. And it affected my personal life in that it it was one aspect that ended my marriage. And it wasn't to say there wasn't other things. And I think part of the entrepreneur lifestyle of working so hard and being obsessed about your business. Business, you know, and that's your sole focus, that crushes your personal life if you let it. And I learned the very hard way one, broken relationship, and two, losing a lot of money that you have to have a balance. Somehow you have to have a balance. And it doesn't, I'm not saying you're not going to work hard and be obsessed about what you're building. And to a certain degree, you have to be but there is something to be said for looking out for the rest of your life because the rest of your life is gonna catch up to you it caught up to me it caught up to me in surprising ways it caught up to me in ending a relationship and losing a lot of money and so now when I reflect back on that and I reflect on my priorities in my life right now and how I want to live moving forward. And, you know, that was six years ago. Thankfully, I met another woman who was just a wonderful, caring, loving person who was an entrepreneur. She unfortunately passed away almost two months ago from leukemia. And that was another kick in the nuts, so to speak. Because we were both entrepreneurs. She owned her own business. She was successful. We were always working, like always working. But we loved to work and we loved to be together. But we also had a lot of fun. And we had a perspective that... Well, what the hell am I working so hard for? It's like, I'm working so hard so I can, what, in the future have fun? Like, got to have a little fun. And you got to have hobbies outside your business. And the reason why it's so important is because if you are just about what you're doing as an entrepreneur or your business, you miss opportunity. It is uncanny how many opportunities I got because I met Jane, who is my late wife and the things that we did that were not related to my business, not related to her business, but we got out in the world. We were charitable. We met people that had similar aspirations. You know, we were a service to the community at whole, at large. And, you know, opportunities would come our way that I never would have had if I was just head down working on the business. And there are just so many examples of <laughs> Jane really being instrumental in moving lab sensor solutions forward just because of who she knew, where we went, that were not even related by a long shot to what I was doing with the business and I am just forever grateful for her and she taught me a lot about that perspective because I mean you never know what may happen and you just can't regret not spending the time with friends and family or those of people you love and, and and no business is worth the sacrifice of that I mean just none zero I mean you as you get older you realize that the only thing you have that's worth any money is your time and you can't you can print money but you cannot print time And the sooner you realize that your time is the most valuable asset you have and how you spend your time and who you spend your time with, you will then start to realize, yeah, I need to put all this in perspective. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I, of course, want to exit my company. I, of course, want to make millions for my investors. I, of course, want to have that metric. But that is not the only metric. And I do feel that getting in entrepreneurship for just that metric, you know, making money will lead you down a path that is not going to be productive. Not to say that, again, perfectly reasonable. Who who wouldn't want who wouldn't want to be a millionaire? But I mean, you look at all the guys that are multi-billionaire. I mean, they don't need to work, but they do it anyway. They do it for the love. I mean, look at Bill Gates, Mark Cuban, Zuckerberg. I mean, they're like using their money to like move the world forward, change the world. Like it's not a cliche, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I just feel entrepreneurs, they need to have that deeper why, you know, like, well, what the hell am I doing this for? Am I doing this for selfish reasons or am I doing it to move the world forward? And it doesn't matter what you're doing as long as there's something bigger than, than okay, I'm going to be a millionaire. I just think you're just not going to be able to weather the storm. And there are plenty (laughs) of ups and downs and plenty of challenges that if you don't have that solid why inside of you intrinsically driving you, it's going to be a tough road. It's going to be a real tough road.
1: Um, I appreciate you sharing that. And I I think probably we'll just leave it off there to give everyone something to think about. Even though called millionaire interviews, it's not all about that. Like I said, it's it's more of a filter and trying to understand and see how people got where they are and looking back in reflection. So I am um, appreciate you sharing you know, your whole story, especially there at the end, and hopefully help people relate a little bit. And if they have any questions or can they reach out to you? Or-
0: yeah, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. I have a blog called thedailymba.com where I write about
1: my musings on
0: entrepreneurship. the best thing to do is link into me on LinkedIn. And I do appreciate the time and what you're trying to do. And my late wife, Jane, (laughs) she would always tell me to do interviews like this. She's like, until someone pays you to do an interview, you do every interview they give you. (laughs) And the reason she was in PR and marketing for professional athletes, startups and nonprofits. And every day I think about what she would do and, and how she Wanted to see the world and, and it's sad, obviously. And I'm sure there's people that are listening that have lost people, but I think we all have to remember that, you know, the only way is, is to move forward. Whatever you're doing, make sure you're moving forward. There will be plenty of times where you will question whether or not you should be doing what you're doing. And if you can legitimately sit back and say, yeah, this is my course. This is my gift to the world. This is my unique and rare talent that I need to share. Then keep going. It's a journey. And all of us are all still, I'm still trying to figure it out.
1: And so, yeah, feel free to connect with him on LinkedIn. So, yeah, thanks again for taking the time today to do the interview with us.
0: Yeah, appreciate you asking.
1: All right, well, thank you. And you have a great rest of the day. You as well. Yo, thanks for listening if you're interested in meeting other listeners of the podcast then request to join our private Facebook group just search for Millionaire Interviews Podcast and you'll find it see you next episode